Well, good morning, Village Church. It's really good to be with all of you this morning. Hey, something really cool is we have uh, two churches worshiping with us this morning. We have Village Church of Bartlett, obviously, but we also have Village Church East. So those of you who are joining us from Village Church East, I'd just love to say welcome. Thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Alex Culpepper. Uh, I am the lead pastor at Alliance Bible Church in Bartlett, and it's a privilege for me to continue with all of you this summer uh, as we go through the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Exodus chapter 13, and we'll be starting in verse 3. Well, this morning we are starting a new series called Rescued. This series is all about a people who have been fundamentally changed. God changed the Hebrew people from a people who were slaves in Egypt to a people who had been freed by God. They changed from a people who were poor to a people who were prosperous, a, a people who were aimless to a people who actually have purpose. And so, so in this series, we're actually tracking these people as they move, they make their way out of their place of slavery, out of Egypt, and, and start going towards the promised land. They're literally taking their next steps towards becoming a nation. But there is this significant reality that we have to consider because they were slaves. They are this labor force, this blue-collar group of people. They are undereducated, uneducated. They have very little structure in their society. All of these things are combining. And then on top of that, they've been told for 430 years that they are subhuman that they are, they are less than, that they are like animals. That's how Egypt treated them. This is kind of the kind of messages that they have received over the course of time. And so, so how? How do you take a people who have received these kinds of, of messages, who have kind of existed in this kind of system, how do you start reshaping their cultural identity? Uh, to, to reshape them and to help them go, move from a people who used to be slaves to a people who are rescued. How you actually turn them from a people who believe that they were like subhuman to, to a people who actually act as citizens. Like these are all the questions that we start to answer in this series. So, so today, as we begin walking into this series of these people who are rescued, there's a question that we walk into it with. And that question is this, how does God plan on shaping these people into the kind of people that will actually be a blessing. Like that's the promise that they were given all the way back when they, that they were told that they would be a great nation, that they would be given a land. All of these messages that they were given, it was uh, couched in this idea that they were going to go and be a blessing. So how do you take these people who used to be a slave people and shape them into a people who are going to be a blessing? You know, as we discuss this idea this morning, it should open our eyes to ourselves. How does God actually take us, the people that we used to be, and how does he shape us into people who become a blessing? So we're in the book of Exodus, and Exodus 13, it actually begins to answer this question for us. So we're in verse 3. Exodus 13, 3 says this, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. So we're given this command, this idea. Moses starts by saying, remember. 
you know what, Moses, he's getting ready to pass on some actions to the Israelites, some things that they're supposed to do. These things will be cultural practices for them. They'll they'll keep coming back to them. But before he gives those actions, before he tells them what to do, he kind of frames the discussion by saying, remember. And, And Moses, actually, what he's doing here is he's stating God's goal, even in providing these actions. His goal is to get these people to remember. Why does he do that? Well, I'll tell you why, and and the reason why is actually it frames our whole conversation this morning. This is the main point this morning, actually. What you memorialize shapes who you become. Let me say that again. What you memorialize shapes who you become. So what do I mean by memorialize? Well, we'll come back to that in just a second. But first, I want to address the general idea of our memories and how they shape us. You know, I was reading online about the psychology of memory. So the American Psychology Association actually had this article, and and it presented this groundbreaking truth that that your memory plays a massive role in the person that you end up being and how you relate to the world around you. So so this is like when we say people are operating out of baggage sometimes, what we're really saying is that, that, that people are operating out of hard memories. Like, like the, the way that they're relating to the world around them, they, they have some memories that are connected to hard situations in their past. That's what we mean when we say people operate out of baggage. And, and so when we talk about memory, it actually plays a significant role in how we relate to the world around us. So, so psychologists have actually placed uh, the idea of memory, they've placed memories into two categories. Uh, they've placed it into kind of declarative memory and, and procedural memory. So, so what do we mean by those things? Well, declarative memories are, are these. They're, they're events, they're timelines, they're details, and they're information. And, and declarative memories, they're these things where you are actively seeking to recall, actively seeking to, to think about what happened previously. Like they're a very conscious effort of your mind. And, and you're very aware of what you're doing when you access these memories. You're trying to remember the details that happen. You're intentionally accessing these memories. And so, so this is a thing that you're very aware of. So, so that's declarative memory. Procedural memories are the, the kind of the place where we're going to spend a lot of our focus this morning. Procedural memories are things like learned skills, language, emotional response. And, and with these, you actually become uh, less active in trying to, to, to access these memories. And it's more of a subconscious effort. So this is like, you know, you learned how to ride a bike. You don't have to now, when you get on a bike, think about how to ride the bike. You don't have to kind of access some memory to learn how to do it. You just know how to do it. This is like learning how to play a musical instrument. Like once you know how to do it, it's kind of just there. It sits with you. This memory is now procedural. This is Mr. Miyagi uh, saying wax on and wax off, saying paint the fence, right? These are these things that you do. And, and the whole goal of that was to build the memory so that it becomes just this natural response that you don't have to think about. Now, this doesn't just apply to physical skill, though. This actually reply, uh, it, it applies to emotional response. So you know that you, you actually respond emotionally to certain things one way or the other. Like Oftentimes, it's because your brain is accessing memories uh, to things that happened in your past, powerful events that happened in your past. And so your emotional responses are responding. You, your memories have taught your brain to respond this way. And so these are procedural memories. We could actually call it cognitive muscle memory. 
Like that's another way that we could think about it. It's the, the kind of knee-jerk reaction, where your mind goes, how your mind responds to certain events. And, and so, so there are two significant things that form these memories. Uh, the first is repetition. So this is that wax on, wax off. This is the painting, the, the fence. This is the musical instrument. Like I can tell you today, I, I know I, I haven't played, uh, I used to play baritone in my band. I haven't played baritone in eight years and I can still play every single one of my scales without fault. I know that the fingerings for every single one because that is like wired into my muscle memory. It's been that long, but I still know how to do it. And that's because I repeated these actions over and over and over again. I taught my body how to remember how to do these things. And so repetition is one thing that forms procedural memory. But then the second thing that that forms procedural memory is powerful experiences. Like there, there are experiences that are so powerful that they only have to happen to you maybe even one time to completely rewire the way that your brain works and responds to various situations. So, so I, I think of a powerful experience I had. You know, I, I was a church kid. I went to church camp. You know, and you get these moments where you're having like these great times with God. You get worship in the evening and somebody's sharing the word and it's spacey in a really special way. And then, uh, so then the next morning. I, I was always an early riser. I would wake up before everybody else at church camp. And, and the next morning I would go out and I would just enjoy nature, uh, the sun rising, the wind on my face, all of these experiences. And, and, and because I had just had that experience the night before, the connection of being close to God and being out in nature, those things got really close together for me. So that this, this maybe only happened three or four times when, when I was a teenager, but now when I'm outside and I'm enjoying nature, I am, uh, like, I'm immediately aware of the presence of God with me because I had those really powerful experiences when I was growing up. This is, this is my brain accessing those memories and kind of just operating with the way it's been wired over my life. So what is happening here? Why am I even talking about these ideas of, of memories and procedural memories and all of this? Why talk about that? Because Moses in framing a discussion that he's getting ready to have on repeated action, he starts with a call to remember. Because he's actually, he's recognizing the need to reshape the cognitive muscle memory of the Israelites. Because he knows that they used to be a slave people, but now they need to learn how to become a nation. Because you have like a first generation and the first generation, they had that powerful experience, right? So ideally that powerful experience, it really should shape the cognitive muscle memory that they have. Like they're going to, they knew what it was like to experience the Passover as it actually happened. They knew what it was like to watch God's mighty hand move them out of Egypt. They experienced it firsthand, but there's a generation coming after them. And then there's a generation coming after them. And all of those people, they're going to have to know how to, how to respond to situations as they come up. They're going to have to know how to wire their cognitive muscle memory. And so there need to be some repeated actions in place that are going to help to shape these people into who God wants them to be. So this is what Moses is recognizing. He's recognizing that what they memorialize will shape who they become. Okay, so... Moses, he gives them two repeated actions in our passage this morning that are meant to shape them. So we'll look at the first one now. Exodus 13, 4 and 5, it says this. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. 
And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So here we actually see uh, the function of creating cultural memory, what this is going to do for this people, because Yahweh, he actually has a purpose for these people. Like he has a vision for where they are going and what they are going to become. So, so they are going into a land that is full of a bunch of pagan nations. Uh, and all of these pagan nations worship their pagan gods and they sacrifice kids to these pagan gods. They are oppressing people. This is a very corrupt place that they're getting ready to head into. And, and so they're going to go out into the middle of these peoples who, are, who have this corruption in the midst of them. And there's going to be battles for Israel to fight. Uh, there's going to be incredible temptation for Israel as they are out there. There are going to be many things that are going to take Israel's focus off of their rescuer. And so in the midst of all of this, Israel, they have a hopeful future, but, but that hopeful future does not come without its own set of challenges. And so who are they going to be when those challenges arrive? What kind of people? How are they going to respond? What will their knee-jerk reactions be when these things come against them? This is the question that comes up. Like, will trusting God naturally be wired into them? Will, will pursuit of faithfulness be seen as valuable to them? Will their national structures and systems actually be able, be able to endure what they're going to encounter? Will they remember who God is? Because what they remember about God is going to be incredibly important for them as they go into this land. So verses 6 and 7. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. So how appropriate is it that the first repetitive action that Moses establishes is based around food? Like how, just how amazing is that? Because like when you ask people about their traditions that they have in their home, the kinds of things that they do, like what is the first thing that they talk to you about? They tell you about the food that they eat with their family, right? Like food just has such a powerful uh, kind of evocative response. It does something to us, right? When we gather with people around a table, we share a meal together. These are powerful moments for us, right? And so, so the first uh, repetitive action that they have is entirely based around food. You know, uh, so my wife's family, they have this, uh, this German tradition, which kind of completely uh, just doesn't make sense to me, but it's it's. Fun. Fun, whatever. So on New Year's Day, uh, we we gather together and we eat sauerkraut. And in the eating of sauerkraut, what you, the reason you eat sauerkraut is so that you will be financially successful over the course of the next year. It's this weird witchcraft superstition, whatever. Uh, and so so you eat sauerkraut so that you will be financially successful. And you don't eat chicken because if you eat chicken, you scratch. That's kind of the saying. If you eat chicken, you're going to scratch, which basically means you're gonna you're not going to do well financially that year and you need to really look out for your family so make sure that you eat sauerkraut even the littlest of the kids you have to make sure that the littlest of the kids eat their sauerkraut so that they can make sure that the family is taken care of right even if they don't like it you have to take a small bite right okay so that is a really weird tradition i completely don't understand it i think it's a little weird superstitious whatever so but we do this and it is like formed in my mind because we've gathered around this meal right and so so the point is 
you know, food, food is a really easy thing to build repetition, to build tradition around. And especially unique food is where this comes to the forefront. Like you think about unleavened bread. Like where else do you see unleavened bread, bread without yeast? Like why would you even eat unleavened bread? That doesn't sound enjoyable at all, but it is a specific focus of this meal, of the food that they eat. And so this meal would have stood out because of the unleavened bread. And that, that would have reminded them that they didn't have time for the bread to rise, that they had to get out of there quickly because the Lord had delivered them quickly. All of this stuff would have come to mind. And so they're going to eat this meal and remember this every single year. This, this, this activity around food is going to become really formative for them. So verse 8 says this. Says, you shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You know what? The uniqueness of the meal, the repetition of this act, it's going to create questions for people. Like this meal is going to stand out because they're going to do it often. But then the the unleavened bread is going to be so unusual that, that people are just naturally going to ask, like, why in the world would you eat unleavened bread? And, and, and he's saying, parents, you need to be able to answer this question for your kids. You need to be prepared with an answer for them. You need to take some ownership of this for yourself so that you can communicate it to your kids. Like what's interesting here is that this is not just repetitive religious action, but it is action with an explanation tied to it. The two are intertwined and the action and the meaning are so closely tied together that every year when the unleavened bread is eaten, Every year when they eat the unleavened bread, every single Israelite, they're going to wire this truth into their cognitive muscle memory. Overnight, Yahweh changed my status from slave to citizen. Overnight, Yahweh completely rewired my identity and he changed me from a slave to citizen. And this is why you keep seeing the phrase over and over in this passage, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt where we were slaves. It keeps getting repeated and keeps getting repeated because God swiftly and powerfully changed everything that, that defined every single Israelite. And so, so Israel, they practiced this meal so that as individuals, they could take ownership of this memory for themselves. So verse 9, it says this. It says, it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, when you eat this meal, you're going you're gonna to pick up the bread with your hands. And then you're, you're actually going to hold it. You're going to feel it. And then when you feel it and touch it, it will be like to you, like a, a sign on your hands. And then you're actually going to look at it. Like you're going to observe it. And it'll be between your eyes. And then you're actually going to eat it. Like you're going to taste it. And it will be in your mouth. And all of these, like the law of the Lord will be in your mouth. These things, you're going to be aware in each of these actions. It will be a memorial to you. And so, so it becomes evident that the, rep- the repetition of the action, that it, it's to mem- memorialize the event for the Israelites. So what you memorialize shapes who you become. So, so now that we've looked at this first action, real quick, I want to evaluate what we're doing when we memorialize something. I actually like want to understand the action behind memorializing. So, so to memorialize something is to establish something around an important event or idea that reminds me and tells others. 
It reminds me and it tells others. So, so these repeated actions, they keep bringing the idea to the forefront of our attention. The, the idea keeps presenting itself to us as we repeat it and, and we keep ha- having to remember it. It's rewriting sort of that cognitive muscle memory, right? But on top of that, it also has a function that moves beyond personal memory, memory to proclamation. So, so, so these things that we do, people actually observe them. They become a memorial. They become, they create questions for other people. So the unleavened bread, you know what? It's usual and it's something consistent that they do. And and it says something about the value that they have. It it puts a question mark in the mind of the observer. So if your kids watch you eat unleavened bread, they have this question mark. Why do we do this? And you know what? The same is true of Christians. Like we have these things that we do that don't make sense. We set aside Sunday morning when we could be sleeping in or taking care of our yard work or that kind of stuff. And and that is unusual for people to do, but we do it. And it is a reminder to us, but you know what? It also serves, it creates this question mark for other people. Why in the world would you set that time aside? Regular patterns of prayer and Bible reading, they stands as they help us remember who we are. But at the same time, when people watch us do these things, they create question marks for those people. You know, when we reach out to and know our neighbors, you know what people don't do in the suburbs? They don't reach out to and get to know their neighbors. But, but when we do that, it kind of creates this question mark in people's mind to go, why do they do that? Why do they place the emphasis on that? And you know what? For the Israelites, these things that they repeat, yeah, they were going to shape their memory, but they were also going to proclaim something really clearly to, to their kids and to everybody who observed them do these actions. Okay, so now Moses. Moses is actually going to establish one more repeated action for them. Exodus thirteen eleven. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you. So, uh, so for this next action, for what it's worth, we see the same pattern starting to be established. Yahweh is reminding them, hey, you have a purpose. You have a land that you have been promised, and you're going to go into that land. And, and things are going to be challenging in that land. And so you need to be prepared for this purpose that I have for you. So verse 12, it goes on and says, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. So, so you know what? The Israelites, they have a unique responsibility. So, so while in ancient Near Eastern culture, typically the firstborn represented for the family everything that the family could accomplish. Like this was the first and best that the family could present. It's what the family is able to contribute. The firstborn was entirely about supporting the family. In Israelite culture, what would happen is that every firstborn male was to be given for sacrifice, was to be set apart to the Lord. So, so in Israelite culture, what that means is that the, 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 the firstborn, it, it exists entirely for a different purpose. It belongs to the Lord. And so verse three, 13 expands on this idea. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons redeem. So, so the Israelites, they're called to this repeated action, this action of sacrificing the firstborn. They're to give it to the Lord. It's to be set apart to him, except there's two exceptions. 
So, so number one, there's the exception of the donkey. Now, what does the donkey have to do with any of this? As they were coming out of Egypt, they, they took donkeys with them. It was part of them plundering the Egyptians as they made their way out. But the problem is, and what we see as the law of the Lord starts to unfold, is that the donkey is an unclean animal. It's actually not fit for sacrifice. And so that's why they had to be able to redeem the donkey. So that's the donkey. But then the second exception is this. Like they can't sacrifice human beings. Like it's just off the table. It's not allowed. And so in order to actually recognize the importance of the firstborn, even for their firstborn sons, what they did is they redeemed a lamb. So what they did is they would they needed to sacrifice their firstborn, but instead of giving their firstborn son, they substituted a lamb in their son's place. Like that's the idea that's being represented here. That's what redeem means. So this repeated action, it should consistently take their minds back to the Passover when they killed a lamb to escape God's judgment on the firstborn. Like this is what this would do. And and verse 14 expands on that. It keeps going. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 15. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So so back when, when what it's saying is, hey, back when Yahweh saved us, he killed the firstborn. He, but in the midst of doing that, when he actually did that, he made a way out for us. He let us kill a lamb. So if we killed the lamb and if we put its blood over our doorposts, we were saved. And that was actually the event that moved us out of Egypt. So this repeated action, every single time there was a firstborn in the family, whether it was livestock or whether it was human, it had to be memorialized in the Israelite mind. Every single time it happened, it it reminded them of this. Yahweh judged sin. That's what he did when, when he killed the firstborn. He did it for the Israelites. He did it for the Egyptians. He judged sin, but he offered a substitute. Yahweh judged sin, but he offered a substitute. So, so yes, when you're thinking of this, you're an Israelite dad or you're an Israelite mom and you're, you're practicing these things. You're saying, yes, you know what? I sacrificed the males of all of my firstborn. And you know what? It, it reminds me of the wages of sin. But in place of my firstborn son, I sacrifice a lamb. And it reminds me that Yahweh graciously did not make me pay those wages myself. You know what, this is why we take communion as often as we're able to, because it reminds us of the wages of sin. And it reminds us that as a substitute in our place, Jesus died. God sacrificed his firstborn son so that we might not have to pay those wages. This is what all of this points to. So then verse 16 wraps up these practices, and this is what it says. Verse 16, it shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Here's the idea, the practice of these things. It will be, it'll be like this ring that I wear on my finger. 
Like when you practice these things, it'll be a consistent reminder to you. Uh, just like this ring is to me that I, I, I consistently b- b- belong to my wife. My wife and I belong together. And then, and then, so that, so that it reminds me of that for myself. But then as I walk out in public, people see this ring and then they're, they're aware of the connection that I have to my wife. And so it, it serves as a reminder for me, but it also tells people something about myself. These things, they're going to be a mark for you. They're going to be a memorial. The practice of these things, they're going to shape your memory so that, so that when you encounter the powerful nations around you, you encounter them trusting the Lord's strong hand. Like that's going to be your knee jerk reaction. That's going to, we're going to rewire your cognitive muscle memory so that you actually trust the Lord when you encounter these strong nations. We're going to rewire your cognitive muscle memory so that when you encounter the sojourner, as you wander out in the wilderness, you will welcome them because God welcomed you. We're going to rewire your cognitive muscle memory so that when temptation strikes you, your attention is always going to be focused on God. We're going to rewire your cognitive muscle memory so that when you think death is near, you remember how God provided a substitute. All of these actions, they memorialize for Israel God's faithfulness to them. And they're actually built to shape their cognitive muscle memory so that the Israelites can can no longer see them as slaves. They no longer see themselves as slaves, but they see themselves as people who are a part of a nation with a purpose. So Village Church East, Village Church of Bartlett, I want to call you to remember something this morning. What you memorialize shapes who you become. What you memorialize shapes who you become. So let's talk about how this applies. So what? So what? Number one, your regular spiritual rhythms shape you for the future. Your regular spiritual rhythms shape you for the future. So, so it's interesting. I, I've read some research that indicates that millennials, so millennials, buckle in. I'm going to come after you for a second, come after myself too. Uh, millennials, we especially have this problem where we are afraid of legalism. And the reason is we sat in churches and, and we watched folks perform spiritual activity and kind of check the box for spiritual activity, but, but never connect it to its meaning. And so, so instead of trying to connect it to its meaning, we kind of wholesale did away with with any form of habits or any form of spiritual activity. And we said, we, we're just not going to engage those practices. So, so heads up, um, for those, for anyone who's neglecting daily patterns of, of Bible reading and daily patterns of prayer, for anybody who's neglecting weekly patterns of church attendance, who, who's just going when it's convenient or desirable for them, for, for anyone who's neglecting regular patterns of giving and regular patterns of serving, you know what? These are not just things that we do to check the box, to prove ourselves to God, but, but for those who neglect these things, these, these are things that we are called to actually shape us for who, like what God is, is, is preparing us for in the future. Like these things that we do, they're practices that we engage to actually shape us into the people God wants us to be. So, so part of the reason that we practice these things is to wire holy responses into our cognitive muscle memory. So that we say things like, you know what, Jesus served me, so I serve his people. We say things like, you know what, without the resurrection, I'm hopeless. So you know what I do on Sunday morning? Well, because Jesus was raised on a Sunday morning, I gather with Jesus' people and we celebrate his resurrection together. You know what, God, God gave me everything that I have anyway, so I have no problem giving it away. 
you know, God wants me, a sinful human being, to actually know him. Like, I'm amazed by this fact that he would want me to know him. And so you know what I do? I engage daily practices of Bible reading. Every time we do these practices, they don't just become ends in themselves, but they do something to rewire our minds. So that we actually have a a different knee-jerk response when we encounter the things that God has for us in the future. They determine actually how effectively we'll be able to fulfill the purposes that God has for us. So that's so what number one. So what number two is this. Always come back to why. Always come back to why. So you know what? If you disconnect the action the activity from the regular intentional reminder of the explanation, then what you are left with is empty ritual. Like if you take the action and and you divorce it from its meaning, then it becomes nothing more than an attempt to prove yourself in some form of self-righteousness. This is what Israel actually, they ended up doing that with these actions. They divorced the actions from their meaning. They didn't let the actions actually shape them into who God wanted them to be. And so, so over the course of time, as we watch Israel develop, we see them that they, they didn't develop into the kind of people God wanted them to be. And, and the actions that were supposed to be formational for them, they actually became for them empty religious ritual. So in the book of Isaiah, the Lord actually talks to Israel about this. And this is what he says in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Verse 14, Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This idea that Israel, they just pursued it because they thought that it proved that it was some form of self-righteousness, but they didn't actually let it produce the change that God intended it to produce. You know what? This is why Village Church, like you all, every time you guys do communion together, like somebody, a pastor stands up for you and they explain it to you. They help you understand what's happening. This is why we talk about the why behind communion every single time. This is why at Alliance Bible Church, uh, every time we do communion, I'm talking about why we're doing communion. Because we don't just do it as empty religious ritual, but it has an intrinsic meaning to it. This is why we don't just like read words from the Bible on Sunday morning, but we talk about what those words mean. So that it might actually do something to us. You know what, if we don't constantly revisit why we do certain things in the practice, it stands a chance of becoming empty. And it fails to do what it was meant to do, which is actually like shape us into the people that God desires us to be. So, wherever you are, you have a question to answer this morning. Wherever you're worshiping from, wherever you're listening from, you have a question to answer. And that question is this. How is God going to shape you into the kind of person that he desires you to be in the future? I can promise you that it will not happen without him uh, developing your cognitive muscle memory, without you putting into place some practices that teach you how to respond, that, that help you develop habits, that help you remember exactly who God is exactly who you belong to, and exactly what God has done for you. So Village Church, Village Church of Bartlett and Village Church East, would you all pray with me this morning? 
Father, I ask that you would help each of us to understand what habits, what practices you desire us to put in place. And that you would help us to be very, very aware of why we're doing those things. That they would not become for us empty religious ritual, but that they would become full of meaning. And that each time we uh, just relish in that meaning, that it would work to reshape our minds. So that the trials that are in front of us for the future, we might actually encounter them. And Lord, we might encounter them with faithfulness. We might encounter them staying true to you. We might encounter them with boldness because we know who you are. We know who we belong to and we know what you've done for us. Lord, as we memorialize things, may we memorialize you. May we remember who you are and may that consistently shape us into the people you desire us to be. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.